Luke chapter 14. Okay, what's the setting for Luke chapter 14 is we're in the last few months of Jesus' ministry. In the last few weeks of that final period, he has headed towards Jerusalem. Luke alone records some of the comments that he has as he is headed from Perea all the way to Jerusalem. And so he's going from the right side of your map towards the center of your map where Jerusalem is located. And on his way, he has several different discussions. He has a message about the straight and narrow gate. He has a message about Herod, that fox, and doing the will of God. He talks a little bit, quite at length, about table manners. In Luke chapter 14, if you turn there and look at that first part of the passage, he's in a home of a Pharisee, and as he's talking, he mentions and gives a story about there's a banquet. The master wants everybody to come to this wedding banquet, so he sends out his servants. They invite people, but when the banquet time finally arrives, they give excuses. They said, oh, I can't come because I have bought land. I've got an ox. I just got married. And so the master is so frustrated with those people who said they would come, but they don't show up, that the master tells his servants to go in and invite anybody. There's still openings because they've invited the poor, the blind, the maimed. There's still openings. So he says, okay, let's invite all the travelers and the strangers. And so the master in this picture is God. The uh, different people that he invites are the poor, clo- the poor Jews, the unwanted Gentiles that the Pharisees sitting at this table with Jesus, they wouldn't have anything to do with. And he's saying God has something to do with them. God's inviting them to his future banquet. And he challenges the, cro- the crowd to basically respond to his call because God God is going to turn from them and invite anybody and everybody else. And so Jesus starts doing just that. Jesus, after he's talked to the Pharisees, he is starting to invite all kinds of people. He's reaching out, he's ministering to them, and the Pharisees, they get really upset. Well, Jesus has a crowd coming, and there's a big crowd coming. We read about it in Luke chapter 14, in verse 25, that a lot of people are being attracted to Jesus. Part of the reason is because of his, his graciousness, his kindness, his putting the Pharisees in their place. You know, people like that when somebody is outspoken and they speak speak their mind at times. And Jesus was. And he was pointing out the errors of the leaders. And so the crowd started coming. And Jesus realizes that a lot of this crowd, they're not coming for the right reason. They're coming because of miracles. They're coming because they light somebody else to get blasted. And so he's not impressed by the numbers nor their enthusiasm. So he's going to thin out the ranks. In Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 25 and following, what he does is he says to this crowd following, if you're really genuine, if you really want to be one of my followers... And he gives them a set of criteria about real discipleship. Now, let's make this observation. This is the minimum. This isn't just, or I'm sorry, this isn't the minimum. This is the standard that he is giving. It's not just say, okay, just to get by, this is all you have to do. That's not what he's getting at. He's saying, if you are a real disciple, this is the priorities of your life. It isn't just the idea of how little can I get by. It's the, it's the idea of how much should I be doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he points out out on the heels of people giving excuses in his parable, he points out nothing is more important than following God, not your lamb, not your oxen, not your marriage. And so he's going to talk about discipleship, which, by the way, is a very common theme in the New Testament. A lot of people, a lot of the Jesus and a lot of the writings of the apostles, they talked about it. And Jesus gives a standard, very simple, very clear, to be a real disciple. Let's look at what he says. Starting with verse 26, he says that you need to do what? in verse 26 of Luke chapter 14. To be a disciple, you have to have what relationship with your loved ones? What does he call them to do? Hmm? He says hate. 
You have to hate your loved ones. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, I'm going to rephrase it because I'm basing it upon the original idea. He's going to say you have to have loyalty to him more than loyalty to anybody else. In his comment, hate not father, mother, wife, kids. By the way, he has just spoken a parable. And in that parable, what was one of the excuses that one of the people gave that they aren't coming to the feast? Because they just got married. And so Jesus is saying that's not a worthy excuse. If you're going to follow me, you have to have your priorities right, even in your family relationships. So you have to hate your family. Now, for some of us, we would say, oh, this is easy to do. There are some relatives I do not like. Okay, and we can jump on that bandwagon, but is that what he is saying? What about your father, your mother? You put your kids in here too. The idea of the word hate is not the idea that we have today. The word he uses back then in that text, in that culture, is the idea of preference. That would be a better understanding. You may want to mark your Bible so it doesn't create confusion in the future. Hate is the idea of an emotional aversion towards that person. That's not what he's saying. He is not not contradicting the Old Testament that said, honor your mother and father. He is not saying that we should not have good marriage relationships. He is not advocating that what we should do is we should become monks and monkesses. Okay, you know, and draw away from any kind of family relationship and go into a monastery or some hilltop and never have any contact with our family, that would violate other passages of Scripture. What he is saying is you don't put family in front of me. You prefer, and that's the better idea for you and I in the English, is you need to prefer him over those families, uh, those other individuals. So real disciples, he's telling this crowd, and this is a challenge, because in those days, family is really, really important. Taking care of family is critical. And he is telling that crowd, he says, what you do if you're my real disciple is you have to put me above all your family obligations. Me first. And so he's implying as well by making this statement, look at verse 26. If any man come unto me, hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brother, sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And he makes this comment that I am your priority. You may have conflict with family members between serving me and serving family. Now, is that true? Do some people, when they become Christian, do they get opposition from family members? Yeah, yeah. Some of you have had that experience that once you started following Christ, your family started ridiculing you. Your family started belittling you. Your family started saying, hey, wait a minute, you're serving Christ before you're spending time with me. And so he's saying there needs to be this, uh, this loyalty to him, not to the point that you are neglecting family and you are having nothing to do with them, but there needs to be a balance. And especially when there's conflicts between obeying me and obeying family. you got to put, put Christ first. Then he goes on and he makes another comment. Now this is all real brief, but he puts it all together. He says you have to bear your cross. Look at verse 27. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay? And so he is making these comments in this test, in this passage about, uh, about following him, bearing the cross, giving him your total loyalty no matter what at any time uh, you have to be willing to bear. Now he's using a common picture. They understood crosses. They understood what that meant. They understood that as somebody bearing their cross, it was the idea they would be rejected by society. It's the idea that they would lose their freedom because 
criminals are put on a cross, that they would experience some suffering. The fact is the disciple must be willing to die to himself, not physically torture himself, not physically beat himself, but actually mentally, socially, emotionally say, I am willing to give up my freedoms, my rights, and sometimes I may have to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so that's very, very important. Now, this isn't the first time he spoke about this before. I'm going to add to this one text exactly what he has mentioned in a couple other texts where he says in this idea, but uh, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, let's develop that where he's used it in another passage where he says you need to give up all things. He says that, that third aspect of following me, coming after me, is you give up like the business. You give up those types of things. You know, forsakes not all that he has. He cannot be my disciple. The idea isn't literally getting rid of all your money. The idea isn't saying, okay, if I'm following Christ, I've got to uh, get rid of all that's all of my social security, all of my property. I need to give it all away. That's not what he means when he says you have to be willing to sell all. The idea is this. The idea is you don't put those items in front of Christ. Once again, the oxen, the donkeys, the uh, fields, they don't come first. It's following Christ has to come first. And so a disciple must be willing to give up even the gaining of a lot of possessions. And that's true for some of you. You have had to make a choice where you said, okay, I'm going to follow Christ and I'm going to be ethical. I'm going to serve him, or I can make more money by being dishonest. And you've had to give up some gain in order to follow Christ. You, some peoples have had to give up future prospects by following a career, making a decision that would change their career, lessen their income by following Christ. That's what he's talking about, that you and I need to do that. And so we, in following him, we have to walk with him and make him our priority. Now, he's made those comments. And he's made them very clear. We can make some observations that are true. Following Christ is not going to be easy. This is truism. Okay? If you're going to follow Christ, it's not always easy. And it doesn't, you don't do it without challenges. That means that what you and I have to do to follow Christ is we make sure he takes precedence over everything. That anyone, everything in our life, he is priority. As well, we must be willing to give up our own personal goals and desires for his cause. Okay, some people may have this goal. And this isn't an evil goal, but it can become evil. Some people will say, okay, by the time I'm 50, I want to be a self-made millionaire multiple times over. To get there for most people, it's going to mean 24-7, you know, seven days a week, just focusing, focusing, focusing so they can have that success by the time they're 50 years old. Well, if you're following Christ, you have to be able to say and stop and say, is my ultimate goal to be wealthy? And again, wealth isn't wrong, but if it means to reach that goal, I have to give up serving Christ for several years. I have to compromise. I have to not fulfill my other responsibilities that Christ has given me. Then it's a wrong goal. And so he's talking about even our gain in the future that we have to be willing to say following Christ and making sure that he is pleased is priority. It is not wrong to own things, but it's wrong when we let those things own us to the point that they veer us away from obeying Jesus, where they, they take us away from following him because of income, because of status, because of position. So Jesus goes on after he's made that comment. Watch what he does. It's interesting. And your paragraphs just 
continue right on. There's no break. Which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest, after he hath laid the foundation, he's not able to finish the tower. And all that behold it, they begin to laugh and mock at him, and they say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. He gives a parable. He gives a second parable. He gives a third statement dealing with discipleship. Three short examples that are going to help explain this idea of discipleship. And they are often interpreted two different ways. Okay, in, And when you pick up commentaries, when you go on the internet, you're going to find this. That some are going to say all three of these put together talk about those who follow him need to count the cost. They need to be willing to count the cost. Now, let's go back to another parable. Let's go back to what he preached oh, about two and a half years earlier than this. He is preaching the soils. Do you remember there was four types of soils? The seed is the word of God. All four get exposed to the word of God. One of the soils is like the highway that the crows come. The crows represent who? Do you remember in that parable? The Satan comes and takes away the word of God. But then there's three other soils that receive the seed. One of those soils, it's, it's receiving it, but it shoots up seed very quickly and it's gone. Another one has more fruit, but then it gets distracted later on. And the other one is very, very abundant and fruit-bearing. And he tells us to be the fourth soil. But what he's talking about is that there are many people who will receive the word, but they won't last. There's a whole bunch who won't take it in. He doesn't want that. He recognizes by the parable that will happen, but that shouldn't be the cause and the case. That shouldn't be an excuse. What he's doing in this parable is he's telling people three, two and a half years later, now listen, if you're going to follow me, you have to be ready to pay the price. And it's going to be paid. It's going to cost you something. Now others say the parable isn't talking about you and me counting the cost. It's God who is trying to build. And when God builds, he's got some stone, some, some um, matter that he's working with that, uh, that isn't really good. And as a result, he's not able to successfully complete his ministry, and it becomes a laughing, st laughing stock. Now, there are some really good men who hold to that view, and they teach all three of these in that vein. Uh, I personally would go with the first one. But that gives you an idea that you may have some different points of views in illustrating and applying this. Let's go on. The first one is building a tower. We already read it. Now, the tower that he's talking about, you would understand if you lived in those days. They would build these towers frequently when we were in Portugal, we saw this. There was a lot of shepherd fields. As we would drive around, you'd see them. And in those shepherd fields, you see these little huts that are made out of stone. And they'd be in, you know, 10 by 10 size hut, and they'd be all over the place out in the fields. This field would have one, that field, that field. And the reason being is the shepherds who are out there during the day, that gives them some protection from the heat and the sun. That the sheep who are in that area, as well, if it was inclement weather, they could go there and have that protection. As well, sometimes these towers could be built near the town or near your home. And it would be not only a place of protection from the weather and the elements if you were out working, but also it would be a place for you to provide protection for your family. And so you can guard your home, your vineyard, your sheep, whatever. And so if you're working in your vineyard, you'd have that hut so you could have a respite. Because again, in many cultures, not in America, but in many cultures, what do you do basically from noon to four o'clock? You rest. Okay. In most cultures, you break. It's called a what in, in some countries? 
the fiesta, okay? And you see that, okay? We were, the Newtons were telling us in Portugal, they said, hey, in Portugal, they're trying to build their whole economic base is really bad. So they're promoting tourism, 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 tourism. They're putting all their money in tourism as trying to stimulate the economy. The problem that they were pointing out is that with tourism, what should you do in the middle of the afternoon? Okay, people are going to shop. So what should typically be done if you're promoting tourism? You should have your shop open. But they're still very traditional. So what happens to most restaurants, most shops? From 12 to 4. They close. Which if you were a tourist, you would want them open at that time. Because in the heat of the day, I want to get into those air conditioning spots. And so he is saying, well, that's, that's their culture. They have these spots where they would get away. And they would get into this, this, this area. So you're building this. You have your vineyard. You're building your, your afternoon siesta place. And you can't get it done. Well, while others are sitting in the shade, they're going to be looking across at your field and going, yeah, what an idiot. He hasn't finished it. He didn't build with the right material. He didn't plan on it. He didn't prepare properly. And so the landowner didn't count the cost before he started building this one, but apparently the elaborateness or whatever it was caused him not to complete it. So he becomes a laughingstock. The others are mocking him. And so he is saying to people who are following him, and I think this is the application, if you're following me, before you jump on my bandwagon, you should consider this. You should consider you may have problems with family. You should consider that the Pharisees may give you a hard time. You should consider that you might lose some business. In other words, don't just jump on my bandwagon with a crowd. And remember, it's a big crowd that's there. He's trying to weed them out. He's telling them that there's going to be difficulty and you should follow me. And it's, it's a worse shame. It does more damage if you follow me for a little bit and then fade away. Okay? In fact, isn't that what some people say about Christians today? It's just a... They, they see a relative that gets born again. And that relative starts serving Jesus. And the family thinks they've gone crazy. They've gone nuts. They, they, don't, they no longer drink or cuss or curse or carouse. And they think that's odd. And they say, oh, they'll get over it. Okay, it's just going to last for a short time. They're going through a phase or they're going through a fad. Well, Jesus says, let's not do that. If you're following me, don't do that because that, that takes away from my testimony. Consider the cost ahead of time. Then he gives a second story. Right on tail, without explaining a whole lot. They, they get it. They understand some of this. He says, oh, you're going to go to battle. Look what he says in this one. He says, you're going to go to war. He says, there's a, two kings. He's going to make war against a neighboring king. Doesn't he sit down first, consults whether he with 10,000 is able to defeat, meet the person with 20,000? In other words, you know, if you're going to go to battle, pick your enemies wisely, okay? And so here's the guy's going to go to war against somebody twice the size of his army. The wise thing to do in this case, if you can't, you can't you know, go to war. The wise thing, he says, is better to sue for peace instead of fighting a losing war. So consider the illustration is very simple again. Consider the cost. 
Okay, consider what this is going to do before you get involved. You know, consider what you're, what, what this could cost you so you don't end up being defeated or compromising or losing more property, more land in the long run. Now, some again will say what this is, is a picture of people fighting against God and God has got the bigger army. It's better to yield to him. I'm not convinced of that. I think the consistency here of the parables and what he has already said is count to the cost, count the cost, count the the cost. And so, with that in mind, let's go to the third story he gives, or illustration, which for us is a little bit, little bit harder to understand. Do, do we typically buy salt that loses its saltiness? No, that's not us. That's not us. Because of the way it's produced and it's packaged. Now, if we lived back in Bible days, would they have salt that would last temporarily? That's true. That's true. Their salt was of a different quality. It wasn't processed. It wasn't, it wasn't as pure. In fact, in those days, if the salt had contact with ground, it would lose its saltiness very rapidly. It would be like a knife or a hatchet. You're not supposed to be taking and doing it in the dirt because it'll lose its cut. It'll lose its, its, its sharpness. You know, don't take the, the chainsaw and, and chainsaw something in the dirt or it'll dull the blade. So, same thing with salt. Salt is going to become dull. It's going to become worthless after a period of time. It's just another mineral and it loses its saltiness. So in Bible days, they had to be careful. They had to try to use it up quickly, keep it for that period of time, treat whatever they're doing and keep it away from the ground in contact with it. And he says, okay, if you and I are going to follow, we have to be salt that maintains its savor, that it maintains its impact. And he uses that illustration. Actually, he uses it in a negative sense. Verse 34, he says, salt is good. We understand that. But if salt has lost its saltiness, then what good is it for seasoning, for preserving? It's, it's not impact. And by the way, building upon what he said two and a half years earlier, he has said to his disciples, you are the light of the world, you are the blank of the earth. You are the salt. He's calling disciples salt. And so now he says that his disciples, if they're not careful, I, again, take it back to counting the cost, becoming, living up to my expectations, having loyalties and priorities. If you've lost your saltiness, then you lose your impact. Then what good are you? Okay? Then what value are you? And his point being, we become useless. Okay, so we are the salt of the earth, and unless we maintain distinctiveness and are, are really given to fulfilling our purpose, then, then we just kind of blend in with the world, and we have no impact whatsoever. So after he said all these things, let's make these conclusions. You and I should reject any idea of easy believism. Do you know what easy believism is? Let me illustrate from, uh, from the internet that uh, talking about some church ministries. Here's easy believism. This is an illustration from last summer. A church was bragging about its ministry that they went down to the beach and they had beachcombing evangelism. And again, I think it can be done well, but I'm using this, this one negative. It's not the idea of where they were or, what they, uh, of, or their intent. It's how they did it that I have a problem with. They went down to the beach and they said that within hours they saw over 3,000 people get saved. Wow! You know, they compared it to Pentecost, how God used their teen group and their adults who did evangelism on the beach with thousands of people getting saved. You and I would say, 3,000 getting saved? 
Amen. Praise the Lord. Except for they went on and they talked about how that happened. One of the young men who was uh, in this article that they had posted, he was telling what they did. You know, how they saw so many people get saved. They would walk up and they'd say to this couple, they would say, hey, we're just visiting people on the beach. Don't, we only want well, about one minute of your time. Do you want to go to heaven? Yeah. Well, what do most people going to say? Okay, then repeat this after me. Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. You just pray that, and Jesus said, whosoever calls upon him shall be saved. And they said people by the scores would pray that prayer. What's missing? (laughs) What's not missing? (laughs) What, what, What doctrines aren't even mentioned in that one that are very important to getting saved? How about sin and repentance? Yes, no? What about understanding the fullness of what Christ did for you? Now, do we need to understand everything about Jesus to get born again? No. But we need, if we're going to call for a Savior, the one thing we've got to understand is before we ask somebody to save us, we've got to understand that we need a Savior, okay, that we're lost. And so easy believism is coming up to somebody and doing something that quick. Now, if we did that regularly, could you see hundreds saved? If that, I mean, who would reject that? Yes, right? I mean, if that, that was so easy that you could stay a Mormon and still pray that. You could stay Muslim. There was no call for a change, right? Okay, so he's saying in this, it, I think what he's saying in this is, you and I have got to be very careful. We don't get into this. And by the way, in America, is there a tendency to go for a quick and easy? Yeah, so easy believism. Is there a tendency in America, do we want to admit we're bad? No, that's countercultural. And so he, that's easy believism. And that's what I think he's doing with the crowd, that people are gathering and gathering. He's saying, listen, there's more to belief and following me than just, oh, Jesus, be my savior. Okay? And he's challenging them. So you and I, when we present the truth, again, we don't have to give all 66 books and help them make sure that they can quote the Ten Commandments, they know the, the Bible in order, and they can give you, a, a, you know, an end times chart. We don't think that people need to do that to get born again. But they have to have some basic knowledge of that Jesus Christ is God, that he's died for them, he's paid the price, and there's no other person way for them to get into heaven than Jesus Christ. And so repentance is involved. So when we present the truth, you and I need to be careful that we don't present it in a shallow fashion, that we present it that there's challenge and there's a cost. Now, again, let me, let me add to this. Let me just go on a rabbit trail. With some people, might you emphasize repentance more than dealing with another person? Yeah, it all depends upon the individual. If the individual understands, and they already understand sinfulness, but they are overwhelmed with guilt, in your gospel presentation, what are you probably going to mention more than the sin factor? You're going to under- explain more of the, the, the forgiveness factor. You're going to explain, you know, that, that uh, I've talked to some people that, that basically what I dealt with was sin, 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 sin. Why? Because they didn't think they were sinners. Yeah. And so you, you emphasize based upon the need. And for some people who have fear, you're going to say, okay, hey, wait a minute. Let me explain where you can have hope. 
And so you, you deal with the situation, those individuals. But again, we present the truth. The, <clears throat> those interested in following Christ, they need to consider the cost before jumping on the bandwagon of belief. So we want to present the truth. We, wanna, we don't want to tell them everything down the road that, that could happen. But at the same time, we want to give them an awareness that following Christ is not easy. Okay, Following Christ... You may, have, you may have to give up some things, but you ought to be willing to do that to follow him. Failure to follow through will bring suspicion to the cause of Christ. I believe that's true, not only by parables, but by examples that we have seen in ministries that you have had and ministries that we have had as a church body with different people. That's that individuals who get on that bandwagon, they shoot out of the, out of the gate like a, like a spiritual tornado, that they are just flowing and then... A few weeks later, the first opposition comes and they fade away. What does that do to their relatives? What does that do to the, their co-workers? It causes them to say, see, it doesn't work. Yeah. And so we want to be careful with that. Um, those who become tainted, those who are born again, and they lose their saltiness. They lose their impact. And that's true, isn't it? You work with some people. You have some neighbors. You have some relatives that have lost their saltiness. And their witness is basically non-existence. Even if they did verbally speak, what would happen with some of the co-workers? They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. So we need to be very, very careful. And by the way, taking that example from their society, it makes perfect sense. Salt would lose its impact as it comes in more and more contact with the earth, with the ground. We become more and more contact with the ground. We lose the world around us. We lose our savor. We lose our distinctiveness. So that idea of living a life that is distinct, being salt, that is really clear, it is there. Man, we need that. We need that in our lives. Let's do something else. Jesus then, in Luke 15, now watch, the, watch as he keeps on going in the text. Okay, He's speaking, and in Luke 15, look at verses 1 and 2. There is what type of people? What does he say? I want you to understand a certain group of people in this crowd they keep following Jesus who are they the republicans and the sinners all in this so that means the republicans and who no that's okay it, it's the publicans were those who were the low class the tax collectors and the sinners this gives you an idea of what they thought about tax collectors i don't think it's changed a whole lot over the generations but the publicans and sinners are gathering what's the pharisees saying this whole text is dealing with with following him and there's now people are following him and who gets ticked about it the Pharisees in verse, verse 2, 1 and 2. The Pharisees are upset. Yeah, okay, and th- this is critical to understanding what he's doing. He's preaching, he's teaching in these villages as he heads for Jerusalem, and crowds are coming. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus already give a parable back at a meal just days ago that he said that everyone was invited, but the people who were the hoi polloi on the same level as the one hosting the meal, that they gave all kinds of excuses. And in that parable, what does the master go, who does he go and invite then? He sent his servants out to invite the maim, the lame, okay, those who were poor in society. 
Now, Jesus is doing that in Luke 15. He is going to those who would be looked down upon in society by the hoi polloi. And he is saying the unlovely, they're being invited. So after telling the parable, Jesus is doing just that because the Pharisees and the self-righteous individuals, they are giving him excuse after excuse after excuse, which he's already dealt with. You have to be willing to follow me and give up family and give up a lot of things in this world, and suffer and give up your freedoms to be my disciple. And so they're upset with him because they don't want to follow him, but they don't want anybody else to follow him. And so they're going to find fault in him reaching out to the unlovely in society. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wouldn't you think that charitable people may not like what Jesus is doing, but they'd be glad that somebody's doing a ministry to those poor people? To help them out. Not these guys. They're mad about it. And so they're going to find a reason. Now they're going to find cause to attack. The reason is their theology. Let me give you two quotes. Two quotes from the Pharisees' teachings. God hates sinners but loves the righteous. Okay. Who's the righteous in this quote? They are. Okay. They consider themselves righteous. But God hates sinners. Let me give you another quote. From pharisaical writings of that time period. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Okay. What, how did they view God? By those two statements, what is the God in their mind? He's a God of judgment. He's a God of favoritism. He's a God who delights in destruction. Is that God? Does, that's them. That's them. They are making a good point. That's them. And they are making God into their own. Yeah. Don't people do that? Okay. Don't. If we're not careful, we make God into our image. Okay. And they were doing that. They were teaching this. This is the teaching that was being done in the Sabbath schools. Your kids would go to a Sabbath school. This is what they would learn. So you understand why it's propagated generation after generation animosity towards the Samaritans? Why you know, anybody who is, a, is collecting taxes, God hates them. God hates them. Well, then what would be your attitude? You would hate them too. Okay? So this is propagated. This is permeated society because this was their teaching. That God hates people who, who don't agree with the Pharisees. Um, by the way, are there groups today that teach God hates others but just us? Okay. Are there religions that teach that? Yeah. And so what should we do with everybody else? We should kill them. We should kill them. They either convert and be like us or we kill them. Okay. Does it ever happen that in the Christian community, people can develop this mentality? Yeah, yeah. That God loves only us. Okay, and you and I know that that's not true. Why do we say it's not true? Because of what Jesus says. This is what he's dealing with. Then he teaches that parable, that idea, that, that parables, some of you would say, but I think it's a parable. He's going to give a lengthy parable that's going to explain, I want to tell you what my God is. Now, oh, by the way, John 1, Jesus revealed the Father. And he says in John 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So this is one of the ways he reveals God. This is one of those important times. He's going to give a series of parables. Now let me remind you. In this thing, this is the section that he gives the story of the lost 
Sheep. What's the other one? The lost coin, thank you. And then the last one is the prodigal. Yeah, he, this is that whole section. I want you to catch something. He is gonna, it's going to state, look at the beginning verses. It says in verse 3, he spake, what's your Bible read? A parable, this parable, singular. So Jesus ties them together. A parable, just again, for in case you're, you're not familiar. A parable is literally to, to para, okay, is beside, baleo or ball, this is the closest we get, to cast something beside. A parable is taking real-life scenarios, not necessarily a, um, um, a clipping from the press. A clipping from the press wouldn't be a parable. A parable is taking a scenario from life. Like, okay, when you're driving and you drive, you take a right-hand turn, you put the blinker on, that would be parable. You're taking a life experience. Not necessarily a one-time, but typical experience. When you uh, go home, you want to rest, you turn on the AC, da, 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 you're taking a life scenario and you're going to build a spiritual truth out of it. That's what he's going to do. He's going to take, a, in fact, in this story, three different life situations that those people could relate to. They would understand this because it was a part of their culture, a part of their life. But all three are interrelated. Okay? Now, let me, let me throw this out to you. You're going by memory without reading the entire text. You have to ask yourself this. If they're all interrelated, what are their common threads? What do all three stories about, about uh, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, that's the lost sheep, verses 8, 9, 10, the lost coin, verses 11 all the way down to the end of the chapter is the lost son. What do those three have in common? I used it in all three titles already. They have something that is... Okay, what else happens in each one? Okay, whatever's lost is found. Okay, what else happens? When they find it, there's rejoicing by the individual who finds it. That individual is so overwhelmed with joy, each one of the occasions, what do they do? They invite others to do what? To celebrate it, okay? Those are your interrelated. Oh, by the way, to find it, there's another common denominator. The person or the individuals who experience the loss, what do they do? In two of them, for sure, they are making active effort to recover. The third one is more passive, but they all want recovery. Okay, let's, let's make our common threads. Something precious is lost. The lost item is longed for, looked for. Okay, that makes our common denominator. It gets found. Great rejoicing over it. And then Jesus, here's the catch. Whenever you study a parable, is there a statement or a comment to explain what he's trying to illustrate? Okay, he does. In this one, he gives you a couple of them. Do you know where it is, Ron? Okay, okay, okay. That gives you explanation. Does he give the spiritual explanation? Let me clarify. Does he give you the analogy? Verse 7 for sure is the first time. I say unto you that likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner. Verse 10, likewise I say unto you, there is joy. He gives the analogy in two of these. He gives you the spiritual significance of his story. So he's given us a lot of explanation. Now the third one, he doesn't say it. The third one, he doesn't give a conclusion. 
I think there's a reason why. Okay, the third one doesn't have any conclusion. But what he's revealing is the hard attitude of God. That's the catch here. He is talking to a crowd that, that is saying, this is how God is. He hates sinners. Why are you associating with sinners? God wants them destroyed. That's what makes him happy. Their destruction. And he's going to totally reverse it and give them the truth. When he does, he gives the three stories. Now, the lost sheep, let's put ourselves, you're listening to this. How would it make sense to you? I, I don't think it makes sense to us as much. Let me give you the reason why. When we, okay, you know the story. There's one sheep out of how many that gets lost. Okay, we Americans who have more, what would be part of our reaction? Let it go, why? It's just one. It's just one. We've got 99 more, okay? Part of the reason we think that is because we can replace we can replace things easily. I'll give you an illustration. We've gone on mission fields, mission strips. And there's been places where we've gone on mission strips that we're, we're doing something and we're trying to put together a booklet. And we just say, oh, hey, here's some paper, but it's printed on the one side. And they will say, well, there's still another side to use. And I say, no way. Why? Because back at Faith Baptist, we got lots of paper. Okay? And if we need more paper, we can go to Staples. Or we can go to Wally World. Or we can go anywhere and we can get stuff, right? It's very easy for us to get that stuff. And on the mission field, they, they, see this part of the paper? We still got a quarter of the sheet we can be using. Okay? It's because of circumstances that sometimes we read stories like this and we don't get the full impact because of where we live. So let's put ourselves, to flip off our shoes. Oh, oh that's, yeah, make yourselves comfortable. Take off your shoes and put on their, their sandals and get a feel for it, okay? Sheep were a common commodity. How many people typically had a sheep or more? Most everyone. Most everyone. Yeah, okay? You, you didn't mow grass. Why? You have sheep. Okay, the sheep ate it, okay? If you only had a few sheep, you would send them out with the others, okay? You, you did this community thing, okay? And so most everybody had sheep. We're talking, the majority of people lived in the countryside. They didn't live in the city. It was the agrarian culture. And so it was a very common. It's very common that people would have 20 to 200. Now, some would just have a couple. But the majority of people in the countryside would have 20 to 200. Why were sheep, you know, why, why did everybody have a herd? Food. Okay. Clothing. Mowing the grass, okay? okay, sacrifices. You got all this in their culture. Sheep were very important, okay? Which, by the way, we missed some of this. If you had, let's say you had your kids, you were raising them, who would have the chores of taking care of the pets? The kids. Who ends up taking care of the pets? The parents. Okay, we know that that's the way it works. But in that culture, the kids would take care of the pets, or the sheep, and the sheep could become pets that never happened in your family okay right okay but some of you who had relatives or you grew up on a farm could some of those animals be ad- 